Coming up today, it's Uber versus cabbies once again, and we try to untangle the complex future of end-to-end encryption. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business, and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Matt Burgess. Hello. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when we found out that the NHS contact tracing app had a big impact on lowering the spread of COVID-19 in the UK. A peer-reviewed paper published in the journal Nature found that the app prevented between 284,000 and 594,000 cases and as many as 8,700 deaths. This was the week when Elon Musk announced that Tesla will no longer accept Bitcoin as payment, citing concerns over its environmental impact in a tweet sent on Wednesday evening. Bitcoin's value dropped by 10% after his announcement. And finally, it was also the week when live audio app Clubhouse launched on Android. The app, which is invite-only, boomed in popularity earlier this year, but has since been struggling to keep growing. In February, almost 10 million people on iOS downloaded the app, while last month the figure dropped to under 1 million. Uh, either of you in the club? Um, yes, <laughs> allegedly. Um, in the same way as sort of I lurk on TikTok and many other apps, but don't actually say anything or do anything or want to interact with anyone. So you um, haven't you haven't spoken up in the house yet? No, someone tried to contact me as soon as I logged onto it and I got scared. So I haven't opened it since. It was sort of quite creepy because I didn't really know the person at all. It just felt like, you're here, hello. And I was like, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> I don't want to be here. So that's that's been my only interaction thus far. Matt Burgess, are you in the club? Uh, no, I've got an Android phone. So I've, uh, the club has only just been uh, opened up to me. So um, yeah, I could now's the earliest I could get on it, but I don't really have any plans to. Uh, I don't see myself sitting around just listening to an app. <laughs> no, me neither. Um, it's been quite interesting reading the amount of stuff that's been written about Clubhouse, supposing that it's going to be the next big thing that takes over and kind of goes against how I use technology almost entirely to think that I'd want to sit around and listen to a bunch of people talk at me. You, know? you realise we're on a podcast, right? No, I know. This is what I know. are trying to do. It's very odd. It's like a podcast, but with none of the editing yeah. and all the worst people in the world. All together, talking to each other. Don't really understand yeah. it. Um, if you're on podcast, uh, if you're on podcast, if you're on Clubhouse <laughs> and want to correct the record, if it really is the future of social networks, let us know. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Maybe we've got it all wrong. Okay, uh, what did we learn this week, Matt Burgess? Uh, I learned a fact about bumblebees and um, that larger bumblebees start work earlier. Um, So new research from the University of Exeter has found that bigger bees are more (laughs) likely to go out foraging in the low light of dawn in the mornings, um, while bumblebees... Well, generally bumblebees have sort of poor vision and can't see uh, very early in the morning. Um, If they go out at this time, uh, it also means there are fewer uh, competitors hunting down pollen. And those bees with uh, those larger bees actually have like slightly bigger eyes. So uh, they have a slight advantage over smaller bees because they can see slightly better to look at uh, predators or anything coming to to get them. So this is the the bee version of the early bird catches the worm, but it's the big bee with big eyes gets the pollen. Yeah, it is. And and for the research, um, I think the team that did it put a load of uh, small NFC trackers on bees so they could see which ones were going out in the morning and which ones weren't. Um, So, yeah, they were just like sort of following them going out of the hives and things. That is insanely intricate, attaching tiny trackers to big bees. Natasha, what did you learn this week? Oh, nothing as cute as bees being fitted out with tiny little trackers but um i learned something about a bale of hay um basically there is a number of stories that surround the london cab 
and its cabmen, and some of them are nothing but bunkum. For instance, uh, there's one that's kind of a widespread thing that's that people still talk about today, and I learned this week. It's never been the law for a motor cabman to carry a bale of hay in his cab. In fact, it was never the law that anyone would have to carry a bale of hay, even when cabs were driven by horses but for some reason for ages until the sort of early 30s and 40s it was a common thinking that in some places um of a cab there would be a bale of hay that people needed to sort of carry around for no apparent reason um so yeah i don't know if you ever heard of it if you have it's a lie so <laughs> there is no hay so if you're cab. driving if you're driving around london right now in a black cab and there's a bale of hay in the back let them know. They can, they can take it out. They don't need it there. That's what you're saying. That's, that's basically it. But I remember so when I was little, there was a, a box in the back of double-decker buses. And my mum used to say that drivers would put their food in there, like their lunch. And this feels kind of like a similar lie, <laughs> which is not true. That's where the motor is. So, yeah, I think maybe someone saw a bale of hay that was being carried around for no reason and thought, why not? Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's the law. Thank you, you know. so much for setting the record straight. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, there's something exciting and new from Wired that I wanted to tell you all about. This week we launched two new newsletters. Newsletters, you might say, doesn't everyone have a newsletter these days? Well, that's true, but ours are better. So first up, we've got Work Smarter, which is a newsletter about the future of work and how to make it less awful. It goes out every Monday and it's packed with useful tips and insights. Then we've also got Chasing Zero, where we take a deep dive into the ways that humanity is tackling the climate crisis. That goes out every Thursday and it's jam-packed full of really interesting information. So if you want even more Wired in your life, and let's face it, why wouldn't you? Head to wired.co.uk forward slash newsletters to sign up. Okay, our first story this week is about a familiar rivalry. Natasha, London's cabbies and their bales of hay are once again angry at Uber. But this time, it's for a different reason. What's been going on? Yeah, black cab drivers in London are really angry right now because Uber has decided to set up what they argue is a series of illegal taxi ranks in the centre of London. So to give some context, since lockdown measures have been starting to lift and people are allowed to meet other people outside for a meal, a lot of restaurants and bars in Soho, central London, have decided to offer alfresco dining, which have meant that they've occupied a lot of space that would have normally been the, the road and they've blocked off many streets. That's why Uber has decided to set up, um, as of this month, pickup points in three different locations in the square mile and direct their customers there to be collected by Uber drivers. And this is very different from what the ride-hailing app has always done, which is to pin people's locations and direct cars to collect them wherever they happen to be standing. Now, cabbies are invoking ancient laws that say that no one except for black cab drivers can sit in a specific spot to pick up passengers and are using them to get Transport for London, which is the transport regulator, to kick them out. So what you're talking about here is one of the few remaining advantages enshrined in ancient law that cabbies <laughs> have over Uber, right? So in the olden days, and now that things are starting to open up again, I can go into central London, and if I really want to spend a lot of money getting home, I can put my hand in the air, and a taxi will stop for me. I can get inside, and it will take me to where I need to get to. I'm describing the process of hailing a cab. You can't do that on Uber, but now Uber has somehow managed to cheat its way to making that possible, right? Sort of, yeah. I mean, what, what you're talking about is something called plying for hire. And I, I kind of did a deep dive for this piece into history. And, and the taxi trade actually started in London about a mile and a half um, away from where this fight is is all happening. In, in this, We're talking about 1634 when four men stood outside a very large maypole and um, decided to offer their services to transport people around the city. And things have remained kind of relatively unchanged since then. It was determined that hackney cabs that were licensed could operate on roads and ply for hire, which is a term that sounds very outdated, but in fact is the argument that taxi drivers are using against Uber today. Plying for hire is when a taxi driver is hailed in the street, as you said, James, picks someone up and traditionally runs a meter from that moment onwards. Only licensed drivers who are um, operating black cabs are able to do this. 
and you get the license by taking an incredibly difficult test called the knowledge, which has a 50% pass rate, takes three to four years to prepare for. You need to know the names and how to get to around 25,000 streets in London um, to, to pass this test. And that gives you an advantage. And the advantage is that those are the people that are allowed to use taxi ranks, which are allocated by local councils and operate an informal queuing system that all taxi drivers respect. It used to be the case that in the Victorian times, people were fined 40 shillings for standing or parking in a taxi rank. Nowadays, the fine is around £1,000 and you can possibly use, lose your licence. But what Uber is doing isn't asking cars to go to traditional taxi ranks. It's something far more basic than that. So when you talk about, you know, is Uber circumventing the rules Taxi drivers saying yes, Uber's saying no. Taxi drivers are arguing that by Uber telling people where cars are going to be, they're training them to head to a specific location to catch cars more quickly, which is the exact model of a taxi rank. Uber maintains that these pickup spots are not permanent and they're not taxi ranks and they're doing this because the streets are shut down and it's the only way for people to know where their cabs, where their cars are going to be. And if you're a black cab driver standing around looking at uber coming and taking all of your business for the last several years you'll be very worried that in this time of unprecedented change you know it's it's temporary perhaps that areas of london will be inaccessible to cars but you know this sort of thing could become permanent there may be advantages particularly in the warmer months to streets that used to have cars going down them all the time being shut off and cabs needing to pick people up from a perimeter and in that instance it might make sense to have these flexible informal ranks that's bad news for laws that have been in place for hundreds of years that protect the taxi industry from competitors like uber so uber launched in london in 2012 and it's been able to grab most of the market share by being cheaper and more convenient than taxis and this is one of the very few things that cab drivers still have over over uber and its competitors so this is kind of one of the last remaining things that they can use to say, actually, get a black cab, don't get an Uber. And it could just disappear overnight. Yeah, you're right. A lot of cab drivers have been saying for years that they've been undercut by Uber um, since it launched. This is the, the kind of grey area that all ride-hailing companies, not just Uber, are operating in, where they can pick up people, they can ask them for money in exchange for rides, but they can't call themselves taxis, they can't use taxi ranks, they can't be hailed on the street. Even if they have logos um, like Addison Lee does on, the, on its cars, you just can't do that. And so they, they've operated sort of respecting those those really kind of set rules that haven't changed practically since the 1600s so th this this battle at the moment that's happening in london at the moment it, it's crucial for exactly the reason that you mentioned because black cab drivers currently have very few advantages to compete with the likes of uber ola get or addison lee their vehicles cost far more one cabbie was telling me that their latest models which are not diesel but you know electric can set them back uh, by about £85,000 and their fares don't bring them a lot more money because they're set by TfL. They don't individually, like the apps, set their own fares and produce surge charges, for example, to, to kind of accommodate the, the rise in demand. The only advantage that they have is that they don't have to pay congestion charges, which means that Zone 1 in London, where all the major shopping places and restaurants and bars are, is their final defence line against ride-hailing companies who they feel are encroaching upon their space. They see Uber setting up these pickup spots as something very dangerous indeed if it's left unchecked, because they could be set up all around the city and make it virtually impossible for them to be to use this being on the street to their advantage. The counter argument here is that you're fighting against the tide, right? That the idea that there are specific patches of tarmac where cars can go for people to be picked up is, is based on a time where you couldn't summon a car with your mobile phone and a couple of taps. And what's happening in and around Soho, right, is Uber saying, okay, Uber drivers, you go to these sort of locations and mill around and that's where your passengers will come to. And what's happening is people are walking to those locations, seeing a bunch of Ubers, opening up the app and just tapping on the one that's nearest to them. And they just walk four paces to the car. So it's effectively... A rank. Now, the problem with that is it could cause congestion or block the streets or just generally be a bit of a nuisance. So there are definitely things to be worked out here. But I think unless you're a black cab driver, there are definitely advantages to this. There's a reason, aside from price, 
that and I'm, I'm, I don't use Uber, I don't like Uber, but there's a reason aside from price that these companies have been tremendously successful, if not in terms of revenue, because uh, well, profits, none of them make much money, but in terms of market share. And this comes at a really, really crucial time for Uber on both of those questions of profitability and market share, because it's under pressure to prove that its model is still viable in the UK, and particularly in London, which is basically the majority of its UK market, because finally, it has to start paying its drivers a fair wage. Yeah, that's the flip side of the coin, isn't it? Uber is trying to hire at the moment around 20,000 more drivers to increase its demand as the pandemic hopefully draws to a close and people start travelling again. But its latest financials show how much of a massive hit it took by losing in the Supreme Court. It set aside $600 million to pay driver compensation. Uh, Still, drivers are claiming that Uber hasn't followed the Supreme Court's ruling because it says it will guarantee the minimum wage only when they pick someone up and drop them off, rather than what the Supreme Court uh, judgment said, which is that it should be from the moment they switched the app on. This distinction is likely to cost Uber far more money because those same drivers are going to be taking it to court again to claim the full amount that they they say they're due. Still, this change in status is huge for Uber because for the first time it's, it's had to say, you know, its drivers are in fact workers and whether it's watered down or not it's a sign of what could come on a wider scale so in the u.s uh, president biden's administration has said that it will consider whether to determine that drivers and other couriers working in the gig economy should be reclassified as workers if that does happen costs will be incredibly high for uber which still hasn't turned a profit something to remember and investors are are very worried about this happening now because the market is so much bigger london and the uk is the second biggest market for uber in the world but obviously if it were to happen in its home market where there's heightened competition from other players such as lyft it would be hugely problematic so you might wonder how this all translates into what's going on in london and those three streets that were set up as pickup spots this month? The answer is quite simple. Uber can't afford to lose this income coming from these bars and restaurants at such a delicate time in its existence. The fight for London has gone from an important part of what Uber does to a proof of concept of its own survival and longevity. And that's why this story is so important. It's a very peculiar collision of two worlds, is the way I see it. One is very high tech, and one is steeped in history. Who would have thought that a decision made by Oliver Cromwell in the 17th century, uh, the 1847 Town Police Clauses Act, and a bunch of embattled cabbies are the ones standing firmly in the way of a big tech company's plan to make money? I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? What you're really saying is that the pressures that Uber is facing right now in London are a model for the pressures and the way it will have to operate potentially in far more markets in years to come, right? The Supreme Court ruling is kind of what this is all about. If that legislation is picked up in other parts of the world, then Uber will need to make changes to its business model to make it viable. I mean, it isn't viable right now. It's making lots of money, but it isn't making any profit. So if these sort of flexible virtual ranks are a part of that of making it more convenient and of getting even more market share from incumbents, then it needs to show that it can make London pay and then probably get ahead of legislation in other jurisdictions so that it doesn't have to spend huge sums of money and many years being dragged through the courts. Yeah, that's exactly what's going on. And that's why cab drivers are so upset because they're saying, you know, Uber is getting away with a lot anyway, or it has, you know, we've we've fought them in the courts on on many different things. But now they're using that grey area because of how antiquated the laws are um, to, to, you know, call a taxi rank by any other name and get away with it. So that's that's why they're putting a lot of pressure on TfL and on Westminster Council uh, to say, you know, you've got to disperse these as soon as possible so they don't catch hold. So people don't get used to going up to those ranks and say why don't we have them across London because that could be not only you know the, the thing the nail, final nail in the coffin for for the taxi um, driver industry but also it, it could prove you know once and for all for Uber that you know it can survive big hits like the one that we saw in the courts this year so it's it, there's a lot at stake here and a lot to lose and Uber is trying its best to land on the side where it wins. 
it seems like such an inconsequential thing. When you first bought this, I was like, huh, that's interesting. But looking at it in a wider context, it, these three locations in a particular part of central London take on an awful lot more importance. It's a really, really interesting mini battle that's part of a far larger battle. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Um, are you planning on Ubering way more as we return to post as we return to as we get into post lockdown life are your habits changing do you see that it can finally put that final nail in the coffin of the black cab industry what does the the future of getting around our cities look like are you all for virtual ranks or are they an insult to the 1847 Town Police Clauses Act. Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that or anything else that we talk about on the show this week. We'll be right back after this message. Welcome back. For our second story this week, we're talking about the big fight that's looming over the future of end-to-end encryption. So this week, we published a big story looking into the implications of the wider use of end-to-end encryption and what that might mean for the fight against child sexual abuse. In the UK, the US and Europe, politicians are drafting laws that aim to protect children online. And one of their biggest sticking points is the use of encryption. And law enforcement and politicians have a big problem with it. They say that increasing the use of end-to-end encryption will make it impossible to find child sexual abuse material that's being shared by people online and, as a result, make it far harder to find sexual predators. But before we get into that, Matt, the story that you reported this week starts off with the story of one of the web's most notorious paedophiles. Yeah, it does. So on February the 10th this year, 36-year-old David Wilson from Kings Lynn here in the UK was jailed for 25 years. He pleaded guilty to 96 sex offences against 52 victims. and They were all uh, children aged between 4 and 14 years old. When he was sentenced, the judge called him a extremely dangerous and serial paedophile, and it took five years for police to track Wilson down and bring him to justice. Um, over this time, his, his crime were horrific. He used stolen images of young girls to befriend children uh, and gain their trust. This mostly happened on Facebook, but also happened across other social media platforms. He would send images of young women and demand his victims send him photos and videos of themselves in return. Soon, he turned to blackmail to force children into performing more extreme sexual acts. And overall, police say he contacted up to 5,000 children around the world and up to 500 of them may have sent him images. His downfall started uh, with a tip from Facebook. The company detected 20 accounts of boys uh, messaging Wilson, who was pretending to be a 13-year-old girl uh, through his account. Uh, And then police had the tricky job of proving that account and the behaviour that he was doing was actually linked to him. To do this, they uh, they used details and requested messages from Facebook uh, through a legal process and um, they also linked uh, all this activity to him through phones they found when they arrested him uh, over three different arrests to prove it was him and they eventually linked him to seven false female identities uh, which were spread across 14 different social media accounts, eight email addresses and five prepaid mobile phone sim cards. But the system that Facebook originally used to identify Wilson and the accounts interacting with him is about to be torn down. Next year, Facebook is planning on putting end-to-end encryption in place across Instagram and Facebook Messenger. It's easy to, maybe it isn't easy, but for me, it's, it's quite hard to link those numbers to human lives. 500 children, he contacted 5,000, and it's thought that as many as or maybe more than 500 children sent images in response. I mean, these are absolutely abhorrent crimes and there are so many lives that may have been ruined or, you know, definitely severely impacted by the behaviours of this individual. Um, And this is an incredibly, incredibly delicate and complicated area. On the one side, you have technology companies quite rightly saying that end-to-end encryption only works for us all works for us all and you can't break it in order to go after individuals and on the flip side you have individuals like wilson who are who have ruined the lives of hundreds of very very vulnerable young people and seemingly the only way to catch him was because end-to-end encryption doesn't exist 
at the moment on the platforms that he used to carry out his abuse. So just to recap for people, if they're not sure about how end-to-end encryption works and why this technology is so potentially problematic for keeping vulnerable people in society safe, it effectively creates a tunnel between the person who sends the message and the person that receives the message. And everything that travels through that tunnel is scrambled. And the only people that have the codes to unscramble what goes through that tunnel are the sender and the receiver. So that makes it very, very secure. So for example, WhatsApp, which is the biggest encrypted messaging platform in the world and which is owned by Facebook, cannot see the messages you send to people. Whereas Facebook at the moment can So on WhatsApp, nobody can snoop. On Facebook, as you said, Matt, through legal processes, law enforcement agencies can get hold of not just the who, where, when, they can get hold of the what, the context of the messages. And the use of end-to-end encryption puts a stop to that in a way that law enforcement claim could make child sexual abuse material really, really hard to find and these paedophiles really, really hard to stop. Yeah, and the scale of child sexual abuse material online is huge. We don't really know the full uh, scale of it, but uh, year after year, child protection agencies have been reporting increases in the amount of abuse that is found online by technology companies and say that things have got worse and more children have been at home during the pandemic. Last year, um, the US uh, group that that looks at uh, or collates all of these reports from technology companies, which is known as NECMEC, Uh, received 21.4 million reports of online child sexual abuse material. Across all of the companies that reported content, Facebook accounted for around uh, 20 million of those uh, those reports, which is about 95% of the total. Um, And child sexual abuse material reports have swelled due to better technology being used to find it in recent years, um, which Facebook, to its credit, has been more aggressive at detecting and finding child sexual abuse material than many other firms uh, that uh, host content. Um, But the the impact of turning on end-to-end encryption across Instagram and Messenger is still likely to be very significant. Um, NECMEC says that around uh, half of the reports that it receives from Facebook could disappear uh, when that change is made and the way that most uh, child sexual abuse material is found online is done through a system of proactive scanning so companies use a technology called photo dna um, there are also other types of technologies that are similar or types of ai systems that uh, also work in the same sort of way but essentially they all uh, look for abuse material by uh, understanding what uh, existing material looks like so photo dna uh, works through having a no list of abuse material and everything is assigned a hash basically videos and images are given a code that is used to identify it and when somebody goes to upload this existing content to uh, uh, or send it to somebody else on facebook messenger for instance and i think there are more than sort of 200 other companies that use this type of technology um what they're sending everything that you're sending is being checked against the codes in uh, this this database of child sexual abuse material to see if the image is a known abuse one if it is uh, then it then it can be instantly flagged and reported to the companies that uh, where it's being sent so if it was if it was happening on facebook facebook would receive a report of this and know uh, what the user who the user was or the account uh, that they were using uh, that was sending this and then they can send that on to NetMEC and when they find this type of material uh, they are legally obliged to report it to NetMEC in the US which then as a body it then sends uh, sends details to law enforcement uh, agencies around the world and they start their investigations into people like Wilson but when end-to-end encryption is placed uh, this can't happen essentially because uh, companies using end-to-end encryption can't see the messages that are being sent then um, there is there is no way for this scanning to happen. This isn't a new debate. This isn't a new problem. Billions of people right, around the world right now are using end-to-end encryption to securely communicate. And I think we can all agree that that is a good thing and it is important to preserve that. The problem is that on the other side of this, we have a problem that's so big, we can't ignore it. And end-to-end encryption does, it seems give child sexual abuse and other kinds of abuse a place to hide. And for politicians and law enforcement, 
that's a really, really tough nut to crack. And they really aren't happy about Facebook's plans to roll out end-to-end encryption across all of its products. The problem that we've got here is that, once again, the scale and the power of Facebook as a private company to make a decision as a private company for the benefit of its bottom line, ultimately, there is a benefit for Facebook in making its communications more secure because it's what people want. Facebook takes that decision and then regulators and politicians are left to pick up the pieces. So the people that we that you spoke to, Matt, who investigated Wilson, so they probably wouldn't have been able to catch him if end-to-end encryption was already in place. So on one side, you've got the people who are dealing with this stuff day-to-day saying, this is a disaster. And on the other side, you've got Facebook saying, we're going to make it an even bigger disaster. Exactly. Um, and around the time that Wilson was convicted, I spoke to, along with a few other journalists, I uh, spoke to some of the investigators that were uh, working for the UK's National Crime Agency that uh, led the investigation into him and prosecuted him. And they said that the move from Facebook would uh, essentially take away uh, the crown jewels from the online protection response. Um, and they say that essentially they needed messages and content about people's uh, behaviour online um, to be able to sort of investigate and and show that they have evidence. Um, they say that it is uh, highly unlikely that a search warrant could be made uh, from a tip that's made to them that does not include content. So it doesn't include the messages, the things that are being said, uh, if there is any abuse images, imagery being shared. Uh, and they say that without that sort of thing, it's very difficult for them to be able to build a case against uh, an offender. Um, and... In that scenario, they are having all of this information provided to them after making legal uh, requests to Facebook, um, and then Facebook is providing that data with end-to-end encryption in place. It means that they won't be provided this uh, this messaging content and uh, and data very easily, really. Like even though it's a long legal process, um, it is something that uh, is handed to them by the company. Um, There are other ways that they might be able to get into somebody's phone to be able to find uh, this type of um, this type of material, um, such as like phones can be hacked. If you have somebody's phone, you can potentially access it and then be able to do that. But that's very different to what happens at the moment when uh, you can make a legal request and are handed this uh, data about behavior. Um, and, and, and as mentioned, sort of NECMEC says when Facebook moves to Messenger and Instagram to end-to-end encryption, there could be a 50% drop in the number of cases that's reported to it. Um, and the real sort of like the big sticking point that you that you mentioned here, James, is that there are multiple benefits to end-to-end encryption for everyone. The technology is used by billions of people. Pretty much every big technology company has it in their in their products in some ways. WhatsApp is end-to-end encrypted. Uh, Google's Android messages system is using uh, it. I think in, in beta test, Microsoft Teams has it. Um, uh, Signal has it. One of the biggest. Uh, messaging apps in the world as well as iMessage um, and that sort of technology protects people's messages and gives everybody the, the uh, ability and the right to be able to have private conversations um, and there's no central database of people's messages that could be hacked and then exposed to everybody which would cause potentially huge damage to millions billions of people um, and essentially uh, people uh, say that end-to-end encryption provides people the the right to be able to communicate freely. Uh, it stops fraud, it protects people, what people are saying, it allows people in countries that are oppressive to be able to communicate freely uh, and talk about sort of governments and actions that uh, could be threatening to them. And yeah, it's become very much the default across technology firms. And it's going to only, inc- the use of it is only going to increase going forward as more people uh, come online around the world and we move to uh, really sort of like continuing the sort of like the how how digitized the world is uh in terms of how we communicate and and, and act online um so essentially yes end-to-end encryption is, is going to be more crucial to our lives going forward um and the um and yeah law enforcement uh have got uh, a, a job to do and and they're trying to do this in in a world that could be very very much changed very quickly for them What the piece you wrote for us that we published this week does so well is it shows how complicated this debate is and how heated it has become. So as we sort of said a few times now, on the one side, you have the technology companies and the sort of unbreakable laws of how end-to-end encryption works. And on the other side, you have politicians 
and ordinary human beings that aren't in these technology companies or aren't in positions of power saying, won't somebody think of the children, basically. And in the past few years, politicians and law enforcement agencies have tried to use everything from child sexual abuse to terrorism to make cases for how we should introduce new laws around the use of end-to-end encryption. But nothing seems to be working. So the use of end-to-end encryption is growing. Um, It's on WhatsApp, once it's on Facebook, and then it's on um, Instagram as well. That's going to cover way more than a third of the world's population and the vast majority of digital communications. Now, WhatsApp's been using end-to-end encryption for a few years, so it's ahead of the competition, even if most of the competition is owned by Facebook anyway. And it thinks it's found a way to keep end-to-end encryption in place while also not giving child sexual abuse material a place to hide. Yeah, that's true. And and as part of the piece that I was speaking this week, I uh, spent some time chatting to uh, some of the team at WhatsApp uh, around sort of what they're doing in, in this area. And they think that they have a solution, uh, which essentially, so WhatsApp detects and bans around 300,000 accounts each month that it believes are uh, linked to sharing child sexual abuse material. And in 2020, it made 400,000 reports to uh, NECMEC in the US. And these are all huge numbers. Uh, it gives us a, a sense of the scale of the problem and shows that very much uh, there are offenders on uh, WhatsApp that are sharing child sexual abuse material and using the platform as a way to uh, yeah to, to share this this material with other people um, and at this point it is worth remembering that WhatsApp can't see your messages it already has end-to-end encryption in place um, and it is finding these accounts based on other things uh, that isn't scanning uh, everything that everybody is sending. Um, and it largely roots out accounts in three ways. And I'm going to go uh, gloss over these like fairly quickly because there's a lot more detail in the piece and uh, to really get into uh, lots of that, we, we don't have the time. But uh, the three ways that it does it largely are uh, sort of analysing unencrypted parts of the platform, such as uh, group uh, group photos uh, that they're not end-to-end encrypted so it can look at them uh, it also analyzes the reports people make from groups uh, or about individuals so you can report people within the app and it also looks at the unusual behaviors that are hidden in the uh, the metadata that pours into its servers all the time um, so as i said it looks at groups pictures it uses the photo dna DNA scanning technology to look at pictures to see if it can find an automatically uh, flag uh, uh, images that uh, involve child sexual abuse. Uh, It also uses AI to scan the names of groups and uh, has a lot of data around sort of like the language that that child sexual abusers uh, use online. Um, And and one of the key things is this sort of like process around sort of people's behavior. So there are 2 billion people that use WhatsApp at the moment and most of us behave in the same way. So if you think of your family WhatsApp group, for instance, um, the people in it probably are all added about the same time. There's not really any change in who are the members. Um, And uh, lots of groups on WhatsApp, the majority, in fact, include less than 10 people. And that's pretty, pretty static. And groups created to share child sexual abuse material don't work like that. So uh, new members can come and go and conversations can be very transactional. The purpose of them uh, after all, is very much to share uh, illegal content. Um, so this can lead to a lot of a normal, abnormal behavior. Uh, and WhatsApp has a lot of data about, a lot of metadata about how we use the platform. So it it has data around your phone number, when you're online, where you send messages, and sort of the activity that isn't the content of your messages. So everything else that you do on there, it knows a bit about. So by looking at patterns of how people normally behave, um, that it can sort of flag cases where people aren't behaving uh, in the same way as most people. And this, it says, can lead to uh, finding uh, child sexual abuse material, but also other types of things that are against its policies, such as spam and uh, people sharing uh, terrorist material and things like that. Um, WhatsApp thinks its its system is effective uh, for finding child sexual abuse material. Law enforcement says it doesn't provide them with enough data. Uh, as we were talking about earlier, they say they need the content, uh, but they don't get this. They can get tips about people's um the ip address that they're using and and, uh, phone numbers and stuff linked to accounts which can lead them to identify potentially a person but then they still have to build out a lot of that evidence themselves um so yeah what 
both WhatsApp says it, it what it's doing is effective. Um, law enforcement says it isn't, but also WhatsApp is doing more than uh, both Signal and iMessage that don't do anything and also have hundreds of millions of users each. So it's a bit of an outlier in this position. So just to go back to the Wilson case, I believe that Facebook, um, when the legal request was made, in one instance, handed over 25,000 messages or 25,000 pieces of data. Is that right? 200, 250,000 messages. 250,000 messages. Um, from speaking to the people that investigated the case, Matt, what they said was that effectively allowed them eventually over three arrests and many years of investigating him that allowed them to get him banged to rights that forced him to plead guilty and it allowed them this is really really crucial right it allowed them to find the victims and protect them and to make sure that proper support was in place for them so what whatsapp is saying is that its system is effective to get sort of 70 percent of the way there But what law enforcement is saying is 70% isn't really enough or whatever percent is. We need to get these people bang to rights. Otherwise, it's really, really difficult to land a conviction. You know, they arrested the guy three times. Each time they arrested him to build up to, to a conviction, they didn't have enough evidence. They went into his house. They took his belongings. They looked at his devices. But without access to the what of his messages, the context, the content of his messages they weren't able to deliver a successful conviction. So you've got the police saying one thing. You've got WhatsApp, as you probably expect it to, as the world's largest end-to-end encrypted messaging platform, to say another. So who's right here and what happens next? I think that in in many ways, both uh, sides of things are correct. Um, when looking into this story, I spent a lot of time uh, doing a lot of research, speaking to a lot of people about sort of this uh, this uh, debate and argument, essentially. Um, and it is one that has become very polarised. So research from UNICEF, which is the, the UN's Children's Fund, says that encryption is good. It protects people online, including children uh, who will grow up. Uh, but it also impedes the ability to find child abuse material. Um, so it is a case of like, lots of the both sides of the things are true um um and that puts sort of politicians and lawmakers in a case of trying to untangle some of this mess and i've been speaking to uh, one of the european commissioners uh who is responsible for responsible for this uh, and they say that uh, the laws that they're creating uh, are trying to take all of this into account so they say that end-to-end encryption will be everywhere uh, but it would be bad if we introduce back doors uh, to end-to-end encryption which would allow uh, which would compromise the security that it provides to everybody uh, but they also say that they need to they're very uh, aware of the job that law enforcement are trying to do um, and the uh, position from europe and also and also a little bit the US and the UK uh, is is increasingly looking at sort of like technical solutions to the problem. And I'm using solutions in sort of like inverted uh, quote marks there um, because from the technical side of things, people say that it isn't quite possible. And one of the sort of like emerging things that has uh, has come up around this is uh, a system called client-side scanning. So it's pretty much the same sort of thing as photo DNA, but instead of happening, instead of images being checked against a database when they are being sent um, to uh, a server belonging to Facebook or any other company, um, they are checked on somebody's phone instead when you go to upload something and send it before it becomes encrypted and is then and then is sent to somebody else uh the there is the idea that you can check the image or video that is being sent against the database um and while research is going on on into the system's feasibility there are sort of plenty of risks and reasons why this might not work so um your phone will need to store a hash list of known child sexual abuse images and videos which would take up storage and processing power and uh as this is a technology being used by two billion people around the world um, there are lots of different qualities of phones and abilities of phones that are being used as well and basically adding a new layer to an app increases the risk of vulnerabilities and people um, who are uh, who are against chi- uh, against uh, client-side scanning um, say that essentially this type of, of scanning is a very uh, large 
invasive system that can be misused by governments around the world. And there are cases of uh, China actually using a system already to look at um, censorship on WeChat and WeChat and see messages that are being shared there. So there's an example of uh, this type of system being abused already. And um, essentially, if you um, if you do have a system that checks everybody's messages and scans everything that is being sent, uh, where do you where do you draw the line? Do, do once you've got it set up for for scanning and checking child sexual abuse material, do you increase that to terrorist material? Do you increase that to uh, material that might be in breach of copyright laws around the world? And where do, where does that sort of slope stop essentially? Um, so there's a lot of opposition to uh, that solution uh, that is being looked at. Um, that's not to say that there might not be ways to make it work with new types of encryption technology that are being developed, but essentially that could be a little bit of a long way down the road. So there is no sort of really clear position uh, on that. Um, and from the conversations I've been having, I think that the point that I want to, I guess, sort of like leave it on is that there is very much no easy answer on this, which is something that uh, Will Cathcart, who is the head of WhatsApp, said very explicitly. He said technical proposals are flawed, uh, but there is no easy answer to what they're doing. And WhatsApp thinks it's come up with one way to do this that is sort of the middle ground. It is the compromise to not break in encryption, and it is the and it is still able to try and find child sexual abuse material and offenders. Um, and I think that yeah, where that where that position comes down going forward is going to be one that there's going to be a lot of debate around and um yeah i don't think this is something that there is yeah unfortunately a technical solution there's no magic bullet it's not overdoing it to say that the debate that we're having right now not us that policymakers and technologists are having right now is going to define the future of digital communications the the problem as i see it and there are a lot of problems here comes back to the fact that Facebook is making a decision as a private company, as I said earlier, to introduce a technology that we'd all agree is good for a free and democratic society. But up against that, you have policymakers that don't have an understanding of the technology trying to break encryption to protect some people while also breaking it for all of us, right? So what you're saying is that okay, it might be all right in theory to have a database of illegal material that can be scanned against for end-to-end -end encrypted communications. But what's to stop, let's say, um, Russia or China or Myanmar from adding things to that database to stop people from sharing information that goes against the government or you know, sharing information to try and help free and fair democratic elections. That's what you're talking about when you talk about a slippery slope. And because this debate is so heated, and because it comes back to child sexual abuse, that's the problem right at the heart of this debate, is that an awful lot of people who might have good ideas, who might want to contribute to the technical arguments that are being had, or the technical debate that's being had, are scared to. Because it seems like you're coming out on the side of paedophiles. That might be a bit reductive, but effectively you're saying, you know, well, you can't break encryption. So you just have to let child sexual abuse happen. It's just a, a fact of life. And that's what's so difficult about this debate. And that leads potentially to bad policymaking decisions where it seems like the technologists aren't coming up with solutions. So law enforcement double down and come up with not to not to speak too out of turn, to come up with even stupider ideas about how to break end-to-end -end encryption and limit our ability to communicate safely and securely. That's the problem, right? Yeah, that is that is very much it. It just puts everybody in a position that there is yeah, not a good answer and uh, it makes the debates hard. And the thing is, with this, it quite often gets uh, reduced down to very sort of reductive polarized positions uh where it's either all one thing or all or or nothing um and with this sort of issue um it is highly nuanced highly technical um and very sensitive as well in terms of obviously uh the subject nature so i think that it is very hard to to see where this goes um but i think that i would hope that most people would agree that um 
if we compromise the technology that helps protects lots of people's privacy around the world, that would not be a good thing. But also at the same time, there needs to be other ways and measures uh, put in place that can make sure people can communicate privately, but also stop um, the absolute horrors of, of this type of offending and, and really uh, help to protect children. Absolutely. It's time to have an informed conversation. And Matt, I think the piece that you've reported for Wired goes a long way to helping a lot of people understand what that informed conversation needs to look like. It's absolutely essential reading. We'll include a link in the show notes. And I do encourage you to sit down and spend some time understanding exactly what's at stake here. Okay, so before we finish up for the week, a couple of angry emails about company rebrands this week after we uh, talked about Aberdeen last week, Natasha. Yeah, so Mike has written in, uh, basically we, we talked about a piece um, last week uh, called Why Brands Ditching Vowels is Really Stupid. And it was triggered by Aberdeen, uh, which is a pensions and insurance uh, company, rebranding itself as Aberdeen. And Mike says, I think you should counter the ridiculous trend of removing vowels from brand names by adding vowels to your own name. Wired would become Wiredo. Or, as I first read it, weirdo. <laughs> On second thoughts, stick with Wired, he says. And clearly, Aberdeen should have stuck with Aberdeen. Now, the, the interesting thing about this story, and I 100% agree with Mike, more vowels, please, if, if, <laughs> if not just for my ability to say words. But the, the, the weird thing about this was that they hired this really expensive consultancy. And what I found uh, when it comes to Wired is that anyone has an opinion. I was recently told by one of my family members that it's so weird that we're called Wired magazine, seeing as a lot of things are wireless. And we should instead call it Unwired magazine, which is the most bizarre situation ever. So even then, you know, I have to say she did a better job than Aberdeen to Aberdeen. So you know, everyone's got an opinion. You don't have to pay millions of pounds to get a bad name. You can just ask any of your family members how would they rebrand wherever you work and come up with suggestions. But um, yeah, thank you, Mike, for yours. Who needs brand consultancies, eh? Uh, so we also had an email from Michael on the subject of Aberdeen, who begs to differ on our conversation about the Aberdeen Pension Fund. They write that as a uh, fully signed up member of Gen Z, they hate how financial institutions present an image of being serious, bureaucratic and pretentious um, and this pretentious idea that they care for their customers. They say it is, quote, repugnant. Um, as a firm, uh, so it, they, they say that they prefer a firm that goes a long way to showing that they are different and not like those other standard financial institutions. So the Aberdeen Pension Fund is trying to target people in Gen Z, um, both in terms of customers, employees, and they're striking out to show that they want to be different and they are different. It's a fair point. I suppose that's that's what the point of the rebrand is, whether or not they follow through. Um, and then they're not just um, kind of putting on a fancy jacket and calling themselves Aberdeen rather than stuffy old Aberdeen remains to be seen. But there we go. Thanks so much for your emails as ever. If you want to get in touch with anything that we talked about on the show this week, it's podcast at wired.co.uk. We love hearing from you, so please do get in touch. Thanks for listening this week as always, and we'll see you again next time. Have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.